Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Revenue Integrity Show on NARI Podcast. My name is Jacqueline Fitzgerald, and I am the director of NARI. We are the National Association of Healthcare Revenue Integrity. And if you haven't had a chance to check us out online, you can do so at nari.org, N-A-H-R-I.org. All right, we've got a great show for you today, although a bittersweet announcement here. We are putting the podcast um, on hold for the time being. So today's episode of the Revenue Integrity Show will be the final edition for the foreseeable future. We will continue to bring members, expert insights, and opportunities for engagement with our NARI quarterly member calls, uh, weekly Revenue Integrity Insider emails, and the annual Revenue Integrity Symposium. Um, As always, you can find past episodes uh, up on our website or across your favorite podcast platform. So plenty of revenue integrity insights and education available for you ongoing. All right, so the last time that we had met, if you missed us, we talked about provider involvement in revenue. Um, I had my friends from Guidehouse with us, including Sue Egan, Associate Director Financial Solutions, Holly Steinman, Managing Consultant of Financial Solutions, Christine Rawlson, Managing Consultant Financial Solutions, Graham Block, Senior Consultant Financial Solutions, and Paul Mannix senior consultant financial solutions so it was a jam-packed roundtable on the last episode so if you haven't had a chance to look at that um, certainly encourage you to do so my guests for today's show we know them well um, i have with me carolyn zananik the managing director of con resnick's healthcare advisory practice marie garcia system manager of revenue integrity charge capture at common spirit health and christian G- gabriel national director of revenue integrity at common spirit health uh, today we're going to go ahead and talk about ed facility levels and critical care uh, before we get into that i do want to call attention to a resource that some of the members of the advisory board have just released, um, including Christian and Caroline, who are here with us today. Uh, So we put together um, some revenue integrity job descriptions that have the stamp of approval of NARI and the advisory board on them. Um, So these will be your standard rev integrity job descriptions and roles, kind of helping you to determine um, where some of those responsibilities should lie within your department. Um, And if you're hiring or trying to staff up your department, what those jobs really look like. Uh, We also have a fantastic algorithm them in there. Thank you to Caroline for that one. Um, So if you are trying to figure out how to right size your department, that algorithm is perfect for you. Um, So if you head over to the NARI website under the resources section, you'll see this on the job descriptions tab. Um, This is not limited to just NARI members. This is open to everyone. So feel free to download this resource and make the most of it and share it with your peers. Um, So with that, I will hand it over to Christian, Caroline, and Marie. Um, Any comments that you wanted to make about this resource for the job descriptions and the algorithm before we get into our um, ED facility level discussion. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, it was fun. Uh, I know when we uh, started to talk about, you know, what what are the revenue integrity teams uh, facing with these days, and it's it's always in trying to justify their positions and and creating uh, job descriptions. So. You know, thank you for for the opportunity to be able to participate in that. I, I hope that our listeners, you know, do find it valuable. I know it's it's uh, every organization is unique. Um, revenue integrity is everything under the sun. I always say, but hopefully it'll it'll be available, you know, for you all. And one one of the recommendations I remember making to the to the committee is that. Um, 
we not restrict the the job descriptions to those uh, just NARI members? So I I really hope you guys are are able to to access it and leverage it. And you know it was fun while we were making it. And Caroline, I, I was wondering if you can maybe just you know comment you know for folks around the algorithm that that uh, you created because a, a lot of them probably will be taking a look at it and you know, just to give them a little bit of a, a background there. All right, thanks Christian. Yeah, the, the algorithm was something that I created years ago and I was actually working um, with the integrated health system to jumpstart them into creating a revenue integrity department. So it was an idea of becoming, of defining what revenue integrity was, which for I think a lot of organizations is really one of the critical and hardest steps is be able to say, what exactly does revenue integrity do? What are the daily activities, quarterly, annual? Where do we get our hands um, into the different processes? So it really starts out with understanding um, the objectives behind revenue integrity. So we, we looked back at Nari's definition and looked forward from applying that definition to the algorithm. So if you look into the job descriptions themselves in that document, you'll get a feel for how the daily activities by different levels really help to support those objectives um, as defined by NARI. And then we took the algorithm just to the next step of being able to understand if I were to look at these types of job activities, the roles and responsibilities, and think about what that looks like on an annual basis and tied in tasks to hours, even considering in vacation, PTO time, holidays and backed into being able to create an algorithm to the level of staffing you would need. And so what I would ask people is as they're looking at this is really to see where the variables may be in regards to the job descriptions, because that can drive change in the algorithms. And we have that outlined in the document as well as some different considerations that may change either the scope within the scope of your department and also drive um, differences in the staffing. So, you know, as we've gone back and forth in some of the other podcasts, as we talk about benchmarks, the KPIs and different pieces, this is a baseline. It's something to get you thinking. It's something to get you started. If you're starting from scratch, great place to start. If you're already involved in revenue integrity, you have an existing department or you want to build upon your department or you're having conversations and going into the next budget year on identifying if I need to allocate more staff and my right size it's a good place to be able to start and even have something now supported by a professional association to go forth to your leadership to support what you may need um, to continue your efforts in your department. Yeah, I remember when you first uh, introduced this in our uh, first committee meeting um, and we were talking about job descriptions and how we can support our, our revenue integrity teams, I was, just astonished and amazed at, you know, the accuracy and the formulas that you had put into the algorithm that, you know, if you were to try to do this yourself, I mean, you know, folks would probably have a hard time, but this is kind of plug and play. And uh, I am a hundred percent sure that we're going to see a lot of revenue integrity teams benefit from that. So great. Um, I, I do want to call out before we dive into the next uh, topic that we, we are going to miss you, Jacqueline. 
it's a bittersweet call today. Oh. You know, uh, I hope that this is not going to be the last. You know, I know I speak for the panelists that we feel honored to be with you on this uh, Thank you. You know, last podcast. So we'll, we're definitely going to make it really, really fun. Great. Thank so, you so much, what, Kristen. <laughs> we're, we wish you a uh, best journey and, uh, you know, a foot forward in, in your endeavors there. So. I so I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk to the to the panel around uh, ED facility charging and even uh, critical care facility charging. I know there's there's been a lot of talk out there in the industry uh, within organizations around uh, ED facility levels. So you can see on any of the background slide, and I'm pretty sure all of you. Uh, listening today uh, or listening tomorrow can can agree that you know when we partner with our revenue cycle teams, we hear from them, oh, you know, United Healthcare, they're downgrading our ED levels, they're reviewing them, and they're saying it doesn't meet you know criteria and so on and so forth. And then a lot more payers are in fact uh, using these ED leveling tools to do said said downgrades. Um, so I wanted to, you know, pick your brain, Caroline and Marie, you know, what, what are some of your thoughts around how organizations can essentially uh, fight these? And I know that's that's such a you know, rough word, but it, it really is, right? You know, we, we feel like we've uh, done our due diligence in adhering to the regulations where you know we've set the standard for our own bell-shaped curve and facility services but yet we still face these challenges of downgrades for ed facility levels and then we can move on to critical care should should we naturally get there so uh, marie if you don't mind i'll, I'll jump in um ED facility leveling has been something that I've been following for a number of years too. And I think definitely as far as, you know, a lot of people have developed and even some of our uh, software vendors out there have developed just the process of getting to how do you define a facility level to get to those bell curves, as you mentioned, Christian. So, you know, without a national standard still yet to be created on what exactly it takes to be uh, a level two or level three, whichever level you may be, um, it really is coming down to the facility to have a defensible uh, process for doing that. But definitely hearing from our organizations, as you stated, where they may not necessarily be denied um, coverage or, or payment, but more so on the downgrade. And what had happened originally uh, when we started seeing this uh, from certain payers was revenue integrity departments were monitoring denials, not necessarily the reduction in payment or the downcoding or, or taking it down to a different level of benefit for the purposes of payment. So for a while, it went about unnoticed in certain areas, but definitely has created, there's a more awareness um, around that now. And there's companies out there um, that actually, you know, as far as, you know, having the fight, they help to perform the defense audits and, and do appeals and, and different pieces there. And some of the feedback from those organizations in that process is sometimes it's just not good coding. Um, it could be the process of how 
coding has come through the lack of documentation. So, you know, before, you know, how I look at it is, is before into, you know, going to the, to the payers is really looking internally. Do we set up the, the leveling criteria correctly? Are we getting, capturing the right information to drive the correct diagnoses? Because what's happening on the payer side is there's a, there's a list out there of diagnoses codes and the payers are looking at them and in some states, there's rules that you have to have at least two or three before they downgrade, or it could just be one. And it's that it's that final diagnosis that they're looking at, not what the patient came in for, what procedures and services you provided, but really what's that final diagnosis at the end of the day and saying, based on this diagnosis, let's use, for example, chest pain. Just based on chest pain alone, I'm going to downgrade your level four visit to come down because there's not a definitive diagnosis. It wasn't found that you had an MI or you went into observation or you had to have surgery or an emergency cath or anything like that. They're strictly looking at chest pain. But as we all know, there's a battery of tests, diagnostics that happen to be able to determine somebody right. could have a chest pain, right? Uh, yeah, they could have just had indigestion, but there's still that resource and, and time related. So the preventable you know, diagnosis list for emergency room visits is out there. And that's that's what the payers have been looking at um, historically. Yeah. So Marie, I don't know if what you're experiencing on, on the provider side, and if you wanna to speak to what, what you've experienced. Well, I think that you actually hit the nail on the head when uh, you mentioned sometimes it's just not good coding. Um, I've actually had this conversation multiple times over the last month and, and just had a discussion yesterday with a colleague about it. And in our attempts to build these algorithms and, and create automation, um, we, we've created these issues. And so going back to, to what you guys started with, with your you know, justifications for revenue integrity teams and job descriptions, this is a prime example of why sometimes we just need people, good old fashioned coders really looking at these charts and helping with input for the algorithms and how we're gonna get to these levels. Um, and how, you know, and how we, we select critical care levels and things like that. Some things um, sometimes don't work well with automation. And, and I think that this is probably one of the best examples that I've seen. Um, and I think there's a way to clean it up. I think there's a lot of discussion throughout the industry of, you know, how we can we can do this better uh, and, and push back on some of the denials. But um, agree 100%. Sometimes it's just not good coding. It's not justified. So we have to find a way to do it better. You know, what? one of the things that, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Christian. Apparently, were you gonna, oh, okay. One of the, one of the things I was gonna mention, because you all hit on a, a lot of very good points, um, was, you know, a, a part of this as well is, is really understanding the gaps too, between the, the coding description, I want to call it, and the actual services that we are trying to fit under the facility setting. So we know, you know, AMA CPT truly provider-driven, right? Critical care. You'll you can read the definition and understand what critical care is when you look at E and M levels. Same thing. And then you 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 try to fit in our facility services, and I think th there is a gap there as well, right? It doesn't quite fit in the facility setting as neatly and as rightly so, since it's really driving uh, professional reimbursement. You know, 
there is that gap in the facility setting. What 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 are your thoughts on that? So I would say my my process and and how I see ED facility leveling is um, I prefer a point based system over the intervention based system. Um, intervention based was introduced by the American College of Emergency Physicians uh, uh, together with the HEMA years ago and proposed to CMS and it wasn't um, adopted as a national standard. And so what came out of that was the 11, I think it was 11 standards or guidelines for creating your standard, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That came out of that. And so I tend to go more towards a point-based system and assigning those tasks and interventions more to points and even more so making one point a minute. And when you sit with nurses and you sit with clinical staff on the facility side and say, if, if you're going to triage or you're going to do a coma scale, if you're going to do these certain things, what, what on average time does it usually take you? That you're going to get better feedback from the clinicians because they can speak in time. Where you see some other models out there where you might have a task where it just has a value of 10 or 100. Well, what does that mean? You can't equate that to anything. So it becomes more defensible if you take it down to more of a time time constraint um, piece of it. But it's also understanding too, as, you know, as we've gotten into the more complex EHR systems that are driving these tasks and the models for us based on documentation, we have to understand how all of that is interrelated um, to the different tasks and interventions between our facility clinicians and our physician staff. Um, they're providing their professional services. And I see a lot of times where that gets mixed up either in an upgrade or a transition to a new model um, or even a new technology that that gets lost um, and that bell curve shifts all over the place. But it also can drive different things. I mean, to, to be preventable, I think one option is we can obtain the list of what's considered to be a preventable emergency room visit and utilize that to create flags in the system that if you have a visit that's a three, four, five, or critical care and has those diagnosis codes coming out, before you even, it gets to the payer, maybe let's stop them as, as Marie said, you know, where's the staff to then look at those pieces? So whether it's in a work queue or an exception report, you know, however it's gonna be flagged and noted prior to that transfer to the payer, let's put our eyes on it and maybe there's you know, some corrections that, that can be made before it goes out the door to prevent that denial or downcode coming back. Right, right. Marie, what are, what are your thoughts around the compliance piece uh, related to this? So you you talked about coding earlier. Now it's like, you know, we're, we're talking about like looking at bell-shaped curves, which absolutely is, is necessary when you think about compliance. What are some other things that you would kind of recommend to our listeners when looking at facility levels and critical care and being cognizant of right you're 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 doing this to defend the charges you're also doing this to make sure you recoup revenue but how do you remain compliant without throwing out red flags what what are some of your thoughts on that my thoughts around that are that your your policies need to, to support your um, the way you calculate your levels. I mean, to the point that you guys discussed, we're trying to translate CPT codes that were intended for profi billing into 
you know, facility charging and coding. And, you know, CMS has recognized that that's probably not the easiest thing for us to do. And there's, there's a lot of guidance out there that says, please have your own policy in place and be compliant and consistent with it. And I think that's where a lot of facilities and hospital systems, they fall short. They're, they're missing that key piece is that internal policy that says, this is how we do this every time for every patient. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're falling out of compliance. And, and with the new uh, EHRs and all these new algorithms, I think people really struggle as to how to get into that detail in a policy and explain how they're getting to these levels. So that's, I think, a, str a struggle I've seen um, throughout different systems uh, and even different EHRs that uh, would, would probably set us right on a compliance side if we could get to that point. You know, and I, and I like that because um, both of you hit on some very good points in that being familiar with how you create a method to get to a level and how you can tie in functionality within the electronic health record. I know in, in Epic, uh, and this was new to me because several years ago, we didn't have this option, but you know, in these days in the new advent of Epic, th there are two algorithms you can choose, you know, point system or you know, procedure-based where you meet a threshold. Um, but you know, for those uh, listeners and teams that may not have a robust, let's say, electronic health record per se, and maybe still on some kind of paper algorithm, so to speak. To your point, Marie, at the end of the day, when it comes to justifying your charges and levels, a policy would certainly supplement that, right? And and would be an artifact used maybe even in a an appeal. So I, I love that. Caroline, anything else to add on that? I would say, um, and definitely, you know, I've, I've seen where payers have come back um, to hospitals and health systems asking for their policy and procedure of how they come up with their facility levels. And a lot of times, and it could just be because I'm sitting on the consulting side, they're reaching out saying, you know, help me write this because they didn't have one. Um, so when you look at it from right. a compliance standpoint, you know, how can you audit for consistency and say that you've met those standards for creating your guidelines if they're not written somewhere? And how, how is somebody else going to come behind you um, and you know, help to support that you're at the right level? Right. So that's that right. critical piece. So in the absence of, of writing a, and this question goes out to either of you, in the absence of creating a formal policy, you know, when you think about steps and grade, you know, back to basics, what would you recommend facilities to at least begin kind of quantifying services to levels and is there something out there that they can leverage as a base, even though it may not be the best or may not reflect the same services they have in their facility? So I would say at a national level, and we run into the same thing on the physician side, you take an even emergency room out of it and a physician group wants to see their E&M bell curve. Um, you can look at it at a national level, you can break it down by specialty, you can break it down by, by geography, everybody's different, right? 
So it's really looking at, you have to be careful and look down at your facility and your severity. So I often direct clients to look at their patient severity mix. Are you higher on the low acuity end? Do you see a lot of headaches, a lot of pink eye? Maybe you have less of a primary care network in your area or urgent care system is driving that lower acuity to your emergency room? Or are you more, you know, in a in a very busy urban setting where you have more trauma type patients? Are you a trauma centered? Are you getting all of the the um, auto accidents? Are you getting you know some of the larger pieces that are going to drive you to a higher higher level? Are you even known for being a cardiac hospital um, that may be bringing in again those higher acuity patients to you? So you really, I would start with the patient mix and layer that on top of your bell curve. Um, there's, you know, kind of a myth out there that, you know, if you're a small community hospital, you shouldn't be further to the right on that curve to a level four, level five. That's not necessarily the case because you may be treating from a facility standpoint, spending more time with that patient and preparing them, for example, to be transported because you don't have the capabilities to keep them as an inpatient at your facility. It's going to drive up your resource need and drive you to a higher facility level versus you may be at you know a large let's say academic specialty type hospital that can easily get you you know from the resource time and expectations get you out quicker um, or, or it puts you in a different status um, that may not necessarily always take you to a four or a five there's there's different things that you have to consider um, even in you know very small critical access hospitals that's always been that they've always said well it, it looks funny to us if we have level fours or level fives we we have a tendency to stay around three don't sell yourself short um definitely that would be my my first step is, is look at your acuity of your patients and really think through the resources and the time that it takes to treat those patients that come through your door right marie any anything to add I mean, I would definitely agree that patient acuity is, is a great place to start. Um, many years ago, I worked at a small community hospital. It was a standalone. It wasn't a part of a big system. Uh, and they were struggling with their with their ED levels and a hospital-based urgent care. So we did exactly that. We, we took a look at our patient acuities, uh, you know, what kinds of cases were we seeing coming through both ED and urgent care. Um, and uh, ACP has a, a great resource. They have um, tons of grids and recommendations. Um, they even allow you to, to use their, their criteria. You just have to ask permission. So we did that. I mean, we created all these templates and point systems. I, I also agree that the point systems are, are the way to go. So that's, that's definitely, um, you know, where I would recommend people to, to start. Right, right. Because uh, recognizing the fact that, um, when we think of where organizations are, and, and some are are barely starting, and some are in the middle, and and you know some are more advanced. I think the, I don't think I, I believe both of your responses really helps address that for our audience. And I, I think what on one last note, you kind of to close this out here that the challenge around facility levels that I have seen because you brought up some very good points, Caroline, in that uh, looking at the levels and, and as you 
create this uh, matrix, so to speak, on services and how that ties into a level and you get it documented so that you can justify, you, you'll be in a good place. But when, when I think about larger organizations that share an EHR that have to rely on a single algorithm, uh, they're, they're essentially going to be winners and losers, right? Uh, because we, we lose the opportunity, so to speak, to tailor our facility levels uh, to that given mix of facility or facilities within that geographic population. So I didn't know if any of uh, you, before we hand it over to Jacqueline, if, if you guys had any thoughts on that. Well, I know in, in certain systems, um, in EHR systems, that are, when they have that module in place and it's standardized and shared across you know, different geographies, there is a way to flag the location and make specific differences. I think what the issue comes about is who's going to maintain the overall standard and the guidelines. Now, you might change your point values at the geographic level, but once you start, you know, having too many hands in the pot, right, it can start to get a little messy. Um, so you definitely want to have internal controls around that, but I definitely would go back if, if you have the ability to have the controls based on, you know, here's our standardized framework, maybe the values may change um, based on how you're structured from your workflow and your staffing um, and even the, the capabilities that you have at an individual hospitals. I, I would double check with the vendors because a lot of times there is, you, you can flag behind the scenes. Um, the, you can have various modules based on differences by location and facility um, to be able to do that. But it really does come down to making sure that you're keeping that standard framework um, right. at least in place and keep, you don't want to, you never want to have too many exceptions, right? To that standard because it, it just snowballs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Cause we, we get into kind of the hot water of, oh, so you're gaming the system to get paid. Got it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I, I know we're, we're at time. So Jacqueline, I'll, I'll hand it back to you. Sure. It's bittersweet. You know, yeah. I can't believe, th you know, 30 minutes, less than 30 minutes just flew by just like that. It did. No, it's always flies by um, when I've got you guys on the line. So I do appreciate Caroline, Kristen, and Marie for joining me today um, for what will be our farewell episode of the Revenue Integrity Show. Uh, but as I mentioned at the top of the program today, uh, Nari will still continue to provide you with all of the benefits you're accustomed to, uh, bringing expert insights and opportunities for engagement with our membership calls, our weekly e-newsletter, and so on and so forth. Um, and do stay tuned for information about 2022 virtual and live events. Um, lots of great things in store for the association in the coming year. Um, so with that, we'll go ahead and close out the show and go ahead and feel free to catch up on past episodes up on our website or across your favorite streaming platform um, if you find that you miss us from time to time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>